Welcome to Centering, the podcast on Asian American Christianity. I'm your host, Irene Cho. This season, we're featuring guests with various perspectives on Asian American topics and the church. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of Centering with the Asian American Center at Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Irene Cho. I am so, so freaking excited for today's episode. (laughs) We are covering the topic of Asian American blended families, and I have invited two, two dear friends of mine who themselves are raising biracial kids and just would love to hear their thoughts, their experience as they're raising children. I just feel like this topic has not been one that has been discussed readily amongst Asian Americans and when we discuss Asian American issues. So please, you all welcome with me, Erina and Susie. Hi to you both. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us for this really important conversation, I feel like, especially with how things are progressing um, sociologically with our country and around the world. Blended families are a thing, and mm-hmm. pretty soon everyone's going to be brown and a little bit, you know... Beige-ish. Beige-ish, right. <laughs> At some point, the research all confirms it. It's coming down the pipeline. Mm-hmm. So you both are pioneers <laughs> in this endeavor. And I'd love to just dive in because we have this is such a huge topic and we have very limited time. So I'd love to just hear from both of you your situation, like what your family is, and just share a little bit about your briefly about your journey before we really dive into some of these issues. Great. Well, I'm Erin Kim Eubanks. I am a second generation Korean American, uh, born and raised in Southern California, but transplanted to the Bay uh, to go to school at UC Berkeley. Go Bears! I've <laughs> been in the Bay Area for almost 20 years now and got set up on a blind date with my husband in 2008 and dated long distance for almost four years. Got married in 2012 and have been in the Bay Area together since. My husband is black and we had a daughter who was born in July 2017 and she's turning two soon, which is crazy. (laughs) So crazy. (laughs) So fast. Her name is Amara and I'm also currently pregnant (laughs) with our second. We're also having another girl um, in September of this year. So if I forget things, I'm a little <laughs> pregnancy-brained. <laughs> please excuse so me. Awesome. <laughs> so great, um, Susie. Please share with yeah. us a bit of your story. Well, you're talking about pregnancy brain. I have perpetual mom brain now. I have four kids, and my oldest is actually named Amaya. So oh, similar. she is seven. My oldest son. I have a girl, boy, girl, boy. And so they're uh, seven. My boy just turned six. I have a three-year-old. She is the epitome of a three-nager, though, and a one-year-old. And my kids are what I like to call Latasian. So my husband is Mexican. I am Korean. I'm Korean-Canadian. That's right. My husband is Mexican-American. So we've got like a real, real blend going on over here. But yeah, it's just a beautiful, swirly family. And uh, yeah, it's quite the journey for us. I moved here from uh, Vancouver, Canada back in 2002. Right after I graduated undergrad, I moved out here to work with a missions organization called World Impact. So I lived in South Central LA for 14 years, and now we're in Long Beach. And um, yeah, Southern California is really home for me now, and we love it. Yep. 
So let's kind of dive straight into the deep end. What have you both kind of discovered as being some of the greatest issues and hurdles and difficulties being married to a non-Asian? And what have been some of the greatest joys and victories? That's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, it is. There's a lot there. I mean, I think in terms of issues or struggles or obstacles, I mean, I feel like there's so many dynamics in terms of gender dynamics, cultural dynamics, family dynamics, um, personality. And so all of that gets thrown into a marriage, gets thrown into family, gets thrown into parenting. And I think that sometimes some of the tensions or difficulties come from how how do I adapt and sort of flex in terms of like in marriage, you have to know your partner and know their needs and learn how to serve and love them. And that that means sometimes you have to change, <laughs> but then also not oh boy. just assimilate and like lose yourself and have right. healthy differentiation, right, in a relationship. And so I think that that's true of any marriage, but I think in in a relationship where there's different cultures and histories and um, family backgrounds and even racial experiences involved, it gets yeah. more complicated. And you know, for for me, being a Korean American woman married to a black man in the United States, you know, I think we have very different racialized experiences. Mm-hmm. And some of one of the struggles has been how do I love and support and stand by my husband while also knowing and grieving the fact that there are certain parts of his experience that I will never experience or Mm -hmm. fully know or fully enter into because I'm not black. And so that is definitely something I've, we have wrestled with and mourned. And yeah, I think it's just part of the reality of our racial history and being kind of in this white supremacist system. And (laughs) I think that that has been a source of a lot of both heartache, but also a lot of solidarity and learning a different kind of family and reorientation to family that has been really profound for us and also profound in terms of our faith life and how we think about community and relationships in general. How do we think about the radical hospitality of God and have this kind of reorientation of who is our family? Um, I think that because we come from different racial experiences, living that out in our marriage has affected how we see the world and live in our country, in our broken and racist country. So So really lighthearted, fun stuff. Oh yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) easy breezy. Susie, what about you? Yeah. I thought it was funny that Erin could just like jump into like, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a white supremacist country and we just like, we're starting. That's that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, it's interesting, especially, um, I, I mean, and Irene, I don't know if you're going to go into this at all, you being married to a white guy. Um, married to a white guy. I, I think it's interesting that both Erna and I are married to men that are also a minority culture. And so mm-hmm. I think in being both Korean and Mexican in our household and both being very, like we both have a deep desire to celebrate our cultural backgrounds. We actually uh, were both in the intercultural studies program at Fuller uh, at the Mm. same time. And so we would joke with people saying that as a part of our practicum, we had to date somebody outside of our our own (laughs) culture. And, you know, like we basically, you know, we we aced that one. We're ready to get our doctorate in that right now. (laughs) But 
yeah, it, it for both of us, we met with a very deep desire to celebrate who we are, recognizing again that we are in this context where we're part of a, a dominant culture that where we have to sort of fight for our identity. And so in when we came together, it's interesting because, you know, I think people assume that because I'm Korean um, and Koreans have this reputation for being, being very exclusive, people always ask the question to Marcos, well, you know, how did, how did Susie's parents respond to you? Did they receive you? Were they against you? And my parents were actually missionaries in South America for a long time. Mm. And so my, my dad likes to pride himself in the fact that he can speak Spanish and all that. And I was also in Korean age, getting married at 30 was considered late. So when I introduced my parents to Marcos, I was 30. And so my parents were like, all right, let's make this happen. Let's get married. (laughs) Um, But I think that having the, you know, having the experience in South America, being sort of familiar with the Latin culture, even though they were in Ecuador, Marcos is like Mm -hmm. Southside Chicago, Mexican, that's totally different. (laughs) But I think that my dad was able to see well, you know, what does God want to do in this? We're in LA at the same time where, you know, the Mexican community and the Korean community are both very strong, prominent Mm. sort of minority communities. But, you know, he was, he had this sort of missional mindset right away where he was like, okay, well, what does God want to do with this Mm -hmm. in bringing you two together? And yeah, I think that that's always kind of been a part of our relationship. Like how can that fusion bring glory to God? So in that sense, it's been a beautiful thing. But I think like you touched upon too, Erna, a lot of this stuff is just like when you're married, you don't know how much of this is just like, this is just two different personalities coming together. Because even if he was Korean, there'd be some stuff where we'd be butting heads. And totally. A lot of times, Sometimes the question just is, is this a cultural dynamic or totally, you know, what is this buffet? Like, is it our culture? Is it our age? Is it our Mm -hmm. gender? Is it our Mm -hmm. personality? Is it our trauma? Is it Mm -hmm. our parental upbringing? Is it the cis? I mean, I was like, what of this buffet of choices (laughs) are we going to choose from why I want to like murder you right now Mm -hmm. in this fight that I'm having with you? (laughs) And I was, I said, when we first got married, I told my friend who had adopted, she's white, she's adopted two Ethiopian kids. I was like, it is like adoption, this multi-ethnic, multicultural marriage, it is so beautiful theoretically on paper. It is so much freaking hard work on mm-hmm. the ground. And I was mm-hmm. like, nobody, everybody told me like marriage itself was going to be really hard, but I was like, nobody warned me how much work. And I vetted my husband, right? Like he was white. I was like, you got to have your stuff together. How woke are you? Cause I'm not about mm-hmm. to marry somebody in 2016 when we're about to have this election, you know, Mm. happen. And we still run into certain elements where I'm like, okay, he's saying something. What does this mean? And so much of like, Erna, what you said, the, I have to swallow my pride. I have to swallow my principles. What I believe is I need to fight on this hill and die on this hill. But because I love my husband and it's marriage, I have to calm down and I have to be like, let me pull up a chair. Let me calm myself. Let me center myself and let's go. Okay. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that, babe? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So gosh. And then Susie brought it up, which is one of the questions I wanted to ask. Erina, how did your parents receive Mm. your husband and what was that interaction like? Yes. (laughs) Michael always tells this story and I actually don't remember ever saying these words, but apparently like, you know, on our second date or something or on a phone call after our first date, you know, he asked about this and he asked about my family and how they might feel about me dating a black guy. And my words were, (laughs) 
my dad is interesting and my mom is racist. (laughs) And it's kind of like, it's funny because it's kind of how it played out is that my mom definitely had the harder time. And, you know, we dated for almost four years and part of it was we were long distance and we were trying to figure out who was going to move and all that. And part of it was just like my, my family needed time more. My mom needed time. And, you know, when I first told her, she like flipped out, kind of had like a breakdown, was very angry, hysterical, just like couldn't accept it. Like, you're not my daughter. Like, I have no reason to live, like kind of thing. (laughs) And so it was really, it was pain. Yeah, it was. And it was also just like, it was a learning process for me to kind of figure out how to interact with that. Because at first I was just like, well, you're just a racist. And how could you do this? And we live in this time. And, you know, it was very like combative Mm -hmm. and kind of had to learn to like, listen to her concerns and Mm -hmm. be like, oh, like you are in a mourning process, Mm -hmm. like grieving this sort of life that you thought your daughter was going to have. And you're, you need a, you need a season to do that. And, and she eventually came around with like many, many miraculous sort of things along the way. Like there were, there, there are many stories of like clear moments when God spoke to her and gave her like a clear word. Wow. And, um, and she even told me some of these things. Like on one Mother's Day, I remember she told me like, I've been praying every day that you and Michael would break up. And then I was praying and then God was like, and then God was like, well, why are you praying this? I don't know. Why why is that my God voice? I don't know. (laughs) But like, you know, she was praying and God was like, well, why are you praying this? And, and then she was like, oh, in that moment, she was like, I realized that I was more afraid of what other people would say about me. Then I actually cared about my own daughter's happiness. Mm, you know, wow. and she, she told me that, like she told me that on a mother's day, like this was like something wow. that God spoke to her in prayer, but you know, and that, and then it wasn't like till two years after that, we finally got married, you know? So it was a long process yeah. and my dad was pretty just like curious, asked questions, didn't mm-hmm. really say much. So I never really knew what was going on in his head. And he kind of played the mediator in that, but, but similar to you, Susie, like, I think that my dad had, I mean, my dad, I mean, both my parents have a deep faith and my dad, you know, on the day that Michael kind of had a conversation with him about like proposing and getting married, Michael always tells the, you know, the words that my dad said, he was like, so you don't need to ask for my approval because I've already given it to you because mm-hmm. I believe that God is going to use your family to break down walls in the Korean community. Wow. You know, so like there was that kind of like bigger vision that my yeah. dad had similar to like what you're saying about your dad. Like, how mm-hmm. do you, how will your relationship bring glory to God? And so mm-hmm. it's, it's been an interesting <laughs> journey, you know, like my mom and dad were very different places, but it was a, it was a long process. So, Yeah. That's so hard. My my mom was really welcoming. She said the first time she met him, he's not like a regular white guy. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, he's so tadate. He's so warm. He's mm. so soft. Not like a white person. <laughs> like, okay. And then what's hilarious is my husband's an Enneagram 8. So he's very, very headstrong. Very, very like independent. My mom is a one. She's so also strong-headed. So these two, we... I, I did not give my husband the small fine print and we, my mom and I were having a battle about something. I forget we were fighting and my husband interjected <laughs> to mediate in his eight way and like yelled at the table and was like, oh, Hey, no. Hey. And she goes, <laughs> my mom said, 
are you yelling at me? And he said in his eight white manness, yes. And she walked out of the room. She calls me and she's like, I'm not going to the wedding. Oh my and God. I, oh, this is before was, the wedding. <laughs> this is before the wedding. This is before um, the wedding. And I'm a nine and I collapsed. I was just like internally collapsing. Oh um, and later my husband, he said, I'm not kneeling. I can't do that, but I will apologize, even though um, I fully believe I'm in the right. And he's like, this is a testament to how much I love you. So he did, because I was like, we're not getting married if my mom's not coming to the wedding, right? And so for us, a lot of it was because my mom was a single mom and it was just us two mm-hmm. all the time. It was me and my mom team. Yeah. And this man comes in, a white man who doesn't know the rules. It doesn't like, and what's hilarious is I tell my white friends this and they think it's funny, but I tell my Asian friends it mm-hmm. and it's exactly the oh reaction gosh. both of you had. Like, <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> uh, what? And my husband, my, my, my poor white husband, he's like, thanks, next time? you need to tell me the fine print. Like, mm. to tell me that I'm not allowed to speak out in certain ways. And so now he checks in. He's like, okay, we're going to your mom's. What are the rules? <laughs> what are the rules of engagement? <laughs> so I have to lay down these things for him. Now you both have children. And so what have been some of the cultural negotiations, the language? I mean, we're both I think all three of us, you know, are very fluent in English, but has there been choices being made, you know, for how we're going to raise our kids to know who their identity is, et cetera, all these things. How have you all negotiated that? I have a fresh story about this. (laughs) So my, my kids go to a Spanish immersion school and that was very, that was very high on our list of priorities. For me, it was kind of like, okay, actually when we lived right in LA, there was an option to go to a Korean immersion school, but then we moved out here, Long Beach, there's, there's no Korean immersion school. So anyways, I thought that Spanish would be more practical anyway. Mm -hmm. So at my kids' school, the two older ones are in first and in kindergarten, and ninety um, percent of their day is taught in Spanish. So they they're really latching onto it. They're learning it really quickly. The other day, like two days ago, I was picking my kids up from school and my older daughter were walking back to the car and she was like arguing with me. So I told her, I was like, Amaya, don't argue with me. Just say nah. It was very creative, right? (laughs) Nah means just say yes, right? Mm -hmm. I said that one word. As soon as I said nah, she starts looking around like all embarrassed. And she goes, she goes, mom, you can't, you can't talk that language in front of all these people. And I was like, what the, like, okay, there was nobody around, first of all. Second of all, like the fact that she called it that language, Mm -hmm. like like this foreign, like she didn't even want to name it as being Korean. Like it took me back to my days where, you know, we all went through that too, right? We all went through that. My harmony lived with us. So if my grandma or my parents ever spoke in Korean in front of my non-Korean friends, I'd get all embarrassed and I'd I'd try to like disassociate myself. Like, who is that? I'm the only Asian kid around, but it's like, oh, who is she talking to? But um, yeah, in that moment, I would just, I, I was astounded because up until this point, I mean, she's only seven, but we've had a lot of conversations with them about like the beauty of how God has brought different cultures together in our family. And, you know, I know it's just been in the last couple of years where she's been able to identify even like, oh, that person's Asian. This person is not Asian, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, just the fact that she was, she was trying to distance herself from her Koreanness really offended me. Like it hurt <laughs> Yeah. And then, yeah, these last two days, I've been like, like the beast has been unleashed. I was like telling my husband, Marcus, I was like, okay, we need to plan out a, a trip to the motherland. We are going to eat cream food every day. I'm going to like 
point it out to her like, oh, okay, you like that pap and you're eating right now? That's, that's Korean food. And like, you know, like reintroducing Pororo. I was like, okay, you guys can listen to BTS. We can get on the K-pop train, all that. So yeah, there's just part of me, it unearths something. So it's very fresh yeah. in my mind where I'm like, wow, we've been, we've been very intentional about the Spanish part, the language part, but we don't have a whole lot of Korean influences around us right now. Mm. And yeah, I think we have to be equally intentional about that. And um, yeah, I'm looking into Korean schools now. Saturday mm. morning is going to be Korean <laughs> school now. Oh, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I failed my Korean school. I dropped out after like two weeks. My mom, it was because when we grew up, there was like nobody. So my mom had to drive like 40 minutes to oh, go to Korean yes. school. Yeah. So when I was like, mom, I don't want to do it anymore because I spelled butterfly wrong. I, I wrote Nobby instead of Nabi oh. on the wall. And then the kid in front of me was like, didn't you write that? I was like, no. And then I went to my mom. I was like, we're not coming back anymore. Oh, wow. Like, she listened to you, huh? She was like, no, she didn't want to drive it. She's like, okay, ah. that's fine. <laughs> Erna, share with us your yeah. negotiations. I mean, for us, I mean, our, we only have one kid right now and, and our daughter's still young. So mm. I feel like we haven't had to do tons of the negotiating yet. I mean, also with the language stuff, Michael doesn't speak any other languages. And for me, my Korean is pretty terrible. <laughs> so, and it actually has been a kind of like a, a point of tension for me because I like have this guilt of like, oh, I want to be able to speak to her in Korean, but like it doesn't feel natural for me, you know, to speak to her in Korean all the time. So there are certain things like certain words we'll use or family titles, like she calls us Amma and Appa, and mm-hmm. like, you know, she calls all her family members by their titles and things. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really had to negotiate the language thing as much just because like both of us really are fluent only in one language. I mean, I'm like conversational in Korean, but, and you know, it's funny because I'll even like when she's with my parents, so she's with her grandparents, I'll tell them like, speak to her Korean. And like, they kind of won't. Mm. I think maybe just because I have two sisters, none of us married Korean guys. So like, I think they're just used to like, oh, when I'm with like my broader family or my son-in-law is like, I have to speak English. So then they kind of don't speak to her in Korean, which is sometimes a little sad for me. So the language thing we're kind of figuring out, but it hasn't been a huge kind of issue per se. But I think there's definitely things like, like our daughter loves, loves kimchi, like already, you know, like, and we have bribed her with kimchi. Like, we'll be like, okay, eat a little more, eat more broccoli and then you'll get more kimchi, you know, or like, <laughs> eat more carrots and then you'll get kimchi. Wow. Like, you know, cause she like loves kimchi and she loves Korean food in general. Like, mm. so it's been fun to kind of see that and introduce different foods to her. And I think just little things that we've done so far is just like music and books um, mm-hmm. have been things that we've tried to introduce in terms of like both cultures being represented. So, mm. you know, we have like a book called Pibimbap and she loves that book. Mm. It's a kid's book and it's like hungry, hungry, hungry for some Pibimbap. And she yeah. like says it, you know, and, but we also have a book called like my brown skin, mm. you know, and she, she'll like point to herself and say my brown skin, brown Aww. skin. So it's, it's really sweet to see like those little things she's picking up on and, you know, singing like, which is like this mm. Korean little folk song for kids, but also singing like down by the riverside and singing mm. spirituals to her, you know? And so I think those are just little things that we've tried to do to kind of have both cultures represented in her life at, yeah. at a young age. So we'll see what happens as she gets older. 
I think one thing that we also do that I don't know that my kids will really catch on to the fact that we're doing this intentionally, but uh, we've been very intentional about sort of decentering whiteness. So even if it's not completely like Asian or this is Mexican or just in general, like with their dolls and all of that, mm-hmm. whatever their toy or show selections are, I'm very conscientious about like who are the main characters and who are so... You know, I think that they're they're used to seeing a broad range of different Mm -hmm. main characters in their books or in the shows Mm -hmm. that they watch. So it doesn't always have to be reflective of who they are exactly. There's not a whole lot of Latasian characters out there, right? (laughs) But they're just seeing a range and they're not always seeing like the white kid as the main character. I love, I love all these stories. Has there been anything, I mean, I feel that both of you from what I know of, so this would be a question of vulnerability and exposure, but was there anything by which there was something on the table, like a sacred cow that was difficult to negotiate? For me, it's really been us trying to figure out how to not have, because I guess I want to say this because, you know, we got married right before the election happened. And so I, I always say 2017 was my lemonade album, right? <laughs> like, speaking. I, you know, everyone who knew me, like, it wasn't as if I wasn't outspoken, but I went like mm. escalation outspoken in 2017 <laughs> and 2018. I've calmed a bit down, you know, now. I've, I've come into recuperation time. So being married during the peak of that was really interesting and difficult. And it's been a lot of negotiation because my husband's family is not here in town, but mine is. And I've had such a huge ordeal dealing with my family and taking care of my parents. So for us, there was a lot of like, well, what are we actually going to celebrate? Whose family takes precedence? You know, like all those negotiations. Have there been difficult conversations and what have those conversations looked like? So I guess like what have been the sacred cows for both you and your spouse and for the agreement for your children in all of this multiracial, multiethnic Mm-hmm. connection and bringing together. Well, I'll jump off of actually when we were talking about language with our kids and Erin, you were talking about, you know, I, I kind of lament the fact that my parents don't speak Korean to my kids in front of him. You know, before we had, <laughs> I got pregnant eight months into our marriage. So there wasn't a long gap where we didn't have kids, like a bunch of kids, because I had them back to back to back to back. <laughs> but you know, I noticed that it, it was a point of tension whenever we were in a Korean context and people were speaking Korean. And if people weren't conscientious about translating what they were saying, it was easy for Marcos to feel excluded. So mm-hmm. I remember the first time that we went up to Vancouver, my hometown, and my grandmother was still living. So we all went out to dinner and everybody was just having their conversations in Korean and nobody was pausing to translate. So after that dinner, he just was communicating. I felt I totally felt like an outsider. Mm. Um, And so I think that at the beginning, when my kids were younger, I actually appreciated the fact that my my dad would make a point to speak English in front of him. But I'm kind of lamenting that now, like I said, with that whole conversation that happened just a a, a few days ago. One of our quote unquote sacred, sacred cows really was the language piece where... For Marcos, he said, you know, it's actually really important for me that our kids speak Spanish. I think because his parents are fairly comfortable with English as well. So I think that if we weren't intentional about it, he knew that it was going to be easy to to get lost. So before we got married, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm down with it too. They need to know Spanish. But I think now that our oldest is seven and she's really like diving into Spanish and I know that the Korean's not there, I'm I'm starting to lament it. So Mm -hmm. I I was ready to 
agreed to that. But now I'm kind of like, ooh, maybe I should have been more like, no, we really got to do trilingual is hard, but let's really try to press into that. And I think that he, he feels me on that. Like when he heard me out when I was like, wow, what is all this? And I was just in my uproar. And so he's, he's, he's game for kind of integrating more of the Koreanness too. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't really think of anything mm. for me at this moment. So that's good. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> but, yeah. We we'll love- see. As we have more kids, they grow older and we continue <laughs> to grow in our marriage, you know, things yeah. might come up. So, right. It's just easy with the one, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait till the second comes. Yeah. Um, okay. As we're closing out, I would love to ask this final question of what would you have wished that someone would have given you advice or insight into as you were entering into this marriage and family? And what advice would you give to others who are entering into this space? Gosh, um, there's a lot of things. <laughs> I think I think for us and our experience, I think something that's been really important is kind of just to know that you have freedom to create your own family culture. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean you erase, you know, your cultures of origin. It doesn't mean that you kind of disconnect from history or any kind of collective memory or any sort of connection to ancestors. No, not at all. But I think there's a way to honor those things and know that you have the foundation of those things and then to also create your own family culture and to have freedom in that and to know there's no right or wrong way to do that. I think, you know, both of us have had experiences and times where people were like, oh, you're not Korean enough or you're not black enough and those kinds of things. And I think, you know, trying to figure out together what it means to create your own values and vision and culture as a family. And sometimes that means keeping things that you had before. And sometimes it makes, it means making entirely new things. And so I think that that's something I wish like someone had told me from the beginning, because I think it's something we've discovered along the way. And we've kind of had those processes along the way. And like one thing that we did during our baby moon was kind of come up with our family principles, like guiding principles for our family. Mm. And that's been really helpful. And I think I would just really say that there's so much freedom and grace and sort of like spaciousness for people to create together and be creative together, you know, as, Mm. as you do this family thing, because there's no one right or wrong way to do it. Right. That's really good. Yeah. It's funny because uh, I feel like a lot of people when they're dating get sort of directed towards us. If they're, if they're sort of a a mixed couple, (laughs) Oh, go talk to Susie and Marcos. And sometimes I feel kind of bad because our journey to getting married was not that difficult. Like my dad was like, all right, let's make this happen. And Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't the typical sort of Asian person meets a non-Asian person and get ready for the battle. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, you know, any married couple, I would tell them, man, some people say that the first year is the honeymoon phase for us. We had like a week long honeymoon phase and then it was like World War Three for the first first, uh, year. And uh, there were so many factors that went into that. But yeah, you know, I think paired with that idea of having a lot of grace with one another, just recognize that it is uniquely 
hard to be in sort of a, a, a mixed ethnic heritage marriage. And everybody is on a different journey. Like my husband and I both happen to be very in touch with our own cultures and very passionate about preserving sort of our cultural identity. But in a lot of cases, there's one person who's very, um, who's very adamant about it. Mm-hmm. And the other person might be, okay, well, we'll just go along with that. And so the journey, like you said, Erna, is different for everybody. And mm-hmm. I love that. You have the freedom to, to create your own family culture, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we have to have a lot of grace with ourselves. And I think too, for me, it required a lot of humility to admit these are Korean tendencies mm. that aren't the best, <laughs> you know? Like being able to confess like, okay, like I'm not going to be offended, but that's the very Korean thing of me. And maybe that's not something that we need to hold on to, you know? So just being, having that humility to recognize there are some parts of our culture that don't really line up with, you know, this is what we want to create, like in Christ, Mm -hmm. Um, there there should be redemption in there. And so it requires a lot of humility and being able to admit things that are wrong as well. Yeah. I love that. The self-awareness aspect is really important. Mm -hmm. And like the reason I asked the sacred cow thing is because we hold on to these sacred cows when we don't do the hard work internally. And it's it's what both of you said. So Erna, like, you know, it's not to say that you should give up that sacred cow, but the question of should I give up the sacred cow needs to be put on the table. Mm-hmm. And even if you both figure out and as a family entity, you figure out, no, we are going to keep this here, you know, a little longer because this is a value that we still have. The question should be begged, you know, like, is this something that needs to come off the table? Is this something that we keep? But I think a lot of times people tend to like dig their heels in and without the self-examination part. And that's been a process for me, again, having gotten married during this time when I feel like white supremacy is just like blatantly out in front of us. I was like, you as a white man are not going to tell me to give up my Koreanness. Like and it was a lot of that myself. Like how much of this was my anger, like to the nation, <laughs> like to other people. And so I think there was definitely a lot of self-awareness and it was the same Susie, like now that we're two years, two, almost two and a half years in, we feel like things are calming down and we're being much more gracious to one another because we've figured out, wait a minute, this is not, you're not the enemy. Right. Okay. Like, let me figure out what is happening internally, what's happening internally for you. And let's come to the table with that, be vulnerable with one another. You know, I lied. This is going to be the last question. Um, <laughs> Like we are predominantly talking to pastors and leaders of the church. What would you say to them as folks who, and I'm sorry that I'm going to have to limit you to like a minute or a minute and a half. What one advice would you give as you are trying to engage with church community as a, as a blended family? How have churches been and what, has, what advice would you give to pastors? Well, it's that whole question of that deeper question of, you know, are you celebrating the fact that your church is multi-ethnic and is it just a surface level multi-ethnicity or are you truly a diverse body of Christ? Because that gets really messy. It gets really hard. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. But in allowing people to really be a true expression of their own cultures, there's going to be a lot of headbutting. So pastors and leaders have to be unafraid of conflict as long as they're willing to walk through resolution and bringing diversity in the midst of, or unity in the midst of diversity and true diversity, not just a surface level multi-ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And part of that is giving up power, you know, like mm. being willing to share power and give it away. And I think that's really hard for church leaders, you know, regardless of what their background is. And I think 
the more that we can share power and the more that we can have different voices, not just at the table, but really shaping the table, you know, I think that it will allow greater access and greater diversity and expression in the body for just more people so that, you know, Amara could grow up and feel like, oh, I could be a pastor someday. That would be a dream. So I love it. Thank you both so much for your time, for your brilliance and your wisdom. I appreciate you so much just as people, as my friends, as women and leaders of the church and the church community. You, you both, I am always in awe of your brilliance. So thank you so much. This is Centering. I'm your host, Irene Cho. Please be sure to join us next week for another all new episode covering Asian American topics. Thanks so much. And I hope you all have a great week. We're all about community at Centering. We invite you to join the conversation by sending your comments and questions at centeringpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to visit our website at centered.today for a list of other shows and resources. This episode is produced by Jason Chu, edited by Carl Catedral with music by Mark Redito. I'm your host, Irene Cho. And above all else, we want to remind you that God embraces all of who you are. 